And you know, one of the proxies of this dietary pattern is cholesterol levels, especially during midlife. We have studies showing that when midlife cholesterol levels are high, LDL is high, the risk of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are high as well. In one series, it was as high as 53%. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Prescription Podcast. This podcast is all about helping you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. We will be featuring conversations with great minds to inspire you to reach your ultimate potential. My name is Muzammil Ahmed. I'm a medical student with a master's in psychology, certification in nutrition, and a bachelor's in business. And my name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student with a bachelor of science in health and fitness physiology, and I'm also a plant-fueled Muay Thai fighter. We are both plant-based lifestyle advocates who are passionate about spreading positivity, optimizing health, and promoting sustainability. Hello friends, today we're joined by an incredible powerhouse husband and wife couple Dr. Dean and Dr. Aisha Shirzai. As we all know, there are so many devastating diseases of the brain and most of us know a loved one who has suffered from these illnesses. The burden of these diseases, financially not to mention physically and emotionally, are just monumental. And that's why we're so grateful for the amazing work of these two neurologists. They're passionate about cutting-edge brain science and educating people on how to prevent cognitive diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia and achieve long-term health and wellness. They're both co-directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center and see patients daily, but they also share their knowledge through online writing, videos, and their incredible book, The Alzheimer's Solution. Dr. Aisha Sherzai has dual training in preventative medicine and neurology and a fellowship in vascular neurology and epidemiology. She also is trained as a plant-based culinary artist and leads the lifestyle program for prevention of neurological diseases at Loma Linda University. Aisha is currently completing her PhD in nutritional epidemiology there as well. Dr. Dean Sherzai is trained in neurology and completed fellowships in neurodegenerative diseases and dementia. He also has a PhD in healthcare leadership with a focus on community health. This is an amazing conversation and we cannot express how much we adore these two for all the wonderful work they are doing. We hope you enjoy it as well. Like always, please share this episode with your friends and family so you can all start applying Team Sherzai's research to your lives. Also, if you haven't done so, make sure to subscribe so you get notifications when our next episode comes out. Hello, Dean and Aisha. We're super excited to have you on our podcast, Plant Prescription Podcast. Like I mentioned before, Rakats and I have been following you guys for a long time. So super excited to be chatting with you guys. I think the best way to start here would be for you guys to tell us about how you guys met each other. <laughs> That's a long... Do you want his version or my version? So, <laughs> I'll go with my version because it's more adventurous. Uh, <laughs> Well, first of all, Mazaba and Cass, thank you so much for yeah. having us. We're so happy to be here with you. We're excited that you are the future, um, and um, we hope that um, uh, what you're doing, which is nutrition and lifestyle and prevention, it becomes the norm in schools and medical schools and uh, health uh, uh, venues. Um, we, uh, I, I've always been involved in, in public health. I've actually got a couple of degrees in public health, and um, um, in 2002, I, I was at NIH doing this esoteric work at uh, experimental uh, therapeutics branch of uh, NINDS, where we put BDNF into the brain of progressive uh, supernuclear policy patients and all kinds of esoteric things. And at that point, um, I was asked by uh, uh, HHS to go to Afghanistan because right then the Taliban were toppled and they wanted me to go and help reconstruct the healthcare system. As a young person, I went there and it was supposed to be a three month expedition. It turned into a three year expedition, initially as the the head of the World Bank um, and USAID activities, but then um, as the deputy minister of health. 
and recreated the entire healthcare system in Afghanistan around women's empowerment. And Aisha had gone back as um, uh, uh, in, for medical school to help with Doctors Without Borders. Yeah, so you know, while I was in medical school, um, I wanted to go and help out because um, my, my grandfather was the prime minister and the minister of health. And he did a lot of amazing things. So just wanted to get back to my roots and find out, you know, if there was anything that I could do to help out. So I joined the uh, Doctors Without Borders and I went to a number of refugee camps. And my job was to educate mothers and children about vaccination and prevention of diseases. And um, I met Dean at a party. I heard somebody who was loud and he was talking about women's justice and he was just so passionate. So I grabbed a chair and I went down and I sat next to him because I was kind of getting bored with the chitty chats in the background. Like, no, I'm, I'm gonna, Don't I'm gonna believe sit that. Next it, to it was the looks. Guy. It was the looks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so and, and that's where it all started. And I, you know, found out about the amazing things that he was doing. And I, I told him, I said, you know, you're such an inspiration. I want to be like you. And then we realized that we had grandfathers who had um, dementia and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's from specifically, it. and they died from it. And then later on, we found out that they were best friends. We oh, didn't wow. know that. That's after, crazy. You know? Yeah. Um, and so our conversation started um, with, you know, a true um, interest and dedication to public health and raising awareness about prevention. Yeah. And, and uh, at that point, although I had all this... Uh, ascension from deputy minister to X, Y, and Z. Um, we decided to, because Aisha was pregnant after marriage, um, uh, well, it doesn't matter, for, after before, but uh, she, we decided to come back to US and restart our, rekindle our um, love of neuro and prevention. So I did two year fellowship at UCSD, which is the num number one neuroscience program at the time with Dr. Leon Thal. And I should do two years of research and again, some, some esoteric uh, fMRIs and behavior and cognition. Functional, functional MRI. MRI. And from there, we had a, our, the door was open to go anywhere we wanted. We had masters, we had all this you know, background from NIH and UCSD, number one. And uh, we said, nope, we're gonna take a risk again. <laughs> and uh, we looked around and said, well, who's doing innovative work or where can we do innovative work? And, 60 miles away from UCSD was the um, uh, Loma Linda. And we had read from Dan's work and others that there is this blue zone where people live healthier and longer lives. But, you know, they had done research on Adventist health study in uh, diabetes and, and uh, every other disease, but not cognitive diseases. So I picked up uh, my, my nature, picked up the phone, called the president of the university. Uh, after a few times I got through said, I'm this person, I've done this, and I want to come there and create a neuroscience program. And he said, oh, yeah, come on. So wow. we came and created our Brain Health Institute there. I started seeing patients, started collecting data. It's so funny that now all of a sudden you see these plant-based people coming up with studies on dementia and reversal and prevention. We did that 15 years ago, <laughs> um, but we didn't get the accolades, the nature of things. And we collected data and uh, what, what was what we found was just bewildering. And um, we did research. Aisha did a double uh, residency. Right. So I did my residency, preventive medicine and neurology, and that's how it all started, our journey towards preventive neurology. I think we coined that term. Yes. Mm -hmm. No, that's yeah. a really cool term because that's a term that's not taught in medical school. Apparently, okay. that's not a thing, but it yeah. clearly is. <laughs> I mean, uh, stroke, 
degenerative disease, migraines, all these things we know are preventative for at least 80%. One thing I want to make sure that because we, in, in, in a new field, in a new direction, people always overshoot. And, and as if now we throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, the progress we've made in medicine is fundamental, meaningful, pivotal. Vaccines work. Here it is. If there's controversy, bring it on. We're ready. I've taken on <laughs> Taliban. I can take on some, some plant-based people. Yeah, bring it on. Um, and, 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 and medicine works. But we say, of course, this number is nuanced, depending on disease and everything. 20% should be treated. The other 80% is being ignored, which is prevention. Mm -hmm. Prevention must be addressed. Um, and, and it's not being addressed. And in fact, our healthcare system is not designed to even address it. And of course, when somebody invests 16 years in health, they, be, they have to have a defensive incredulity and, and, and cynicism toward what they don't know in that 16 years of monosyllabic uh, education. By the way, we love you guys to have the courage to completely challenge, not challenge in a negative way, to bring a chasm of new and thought, which is nutrition into medicine. That's Absolutely. what makes it amazing. Oh, you guys are amazing. Thank you. No, yeah. You guys are the ones who are like, you know, paving the way for us to follow. So I hate it to be the person paving the way. That means I'm old already. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, we're paving with you. We're paving with you. We're paving it all together. So you guys touched on Alzheimer's, and I think that's a great place to start. Could you just discuss, um, well, let's talk about the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia and how they both present, and then we can get into the nitty-gritty detail after Sure, sure. So um, dementia is an umbrella category like cancer and Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia like, you know, colon cancer or breast cancer. Um, and there are multiple other types of dementia as well. There's frontotemporal lobe dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, Lewy body dementia, and so many others, um, smaller esoteric ones. Um, but dementia is defined as a state when someone has cognitive problems to the point where they can't do their activities of daily living, like managing their finances or driving or taking care of their activities of daily living. And, um, you know, our whole life has been dedicated on understanding this. And unfortunately, the models that we have so far of Alzheimer's dementia is looking at the downstream product and the end product mm -hmm. of the disease, not what actually causes it. Um, and uh, there's no medication for it. You know, after years and years and billions of dollars spent on clinical trials, we don't have a single medication that has worked to stop and uh, or reverse the disease. Uh, we don't even have any medication to prevent it. All the medications that have been approved are for symptomatic relief and only temporary. And minimal, nominal. Minimal, nominal, yes. And it doesn't work for everyone. Um, so, you know, medications like donepazil or memantine and things of that nature, they're only symptomatic. So we don't have a treatment for it. And it's devastating. The numbers are crazy. Currently, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. And the number is rising. Um, the statistics state that every 64 seconds, somebody is uh, diagnosed with dementia. But we believe that that number is an underestimation because there are a lot of communities and a lot of people who don't even report it. They live with it, assuming that this is just natural, you know, senescence and getting old. And this is just a part of normal uh, human life, but it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in many communities, 
there's some disparities. Uh, women are twice as much risk as men. So we haven't even gotten into studying those. I mean, the, uh, we see all these gatherings about women and Alzheimer's and women and brain health. And it's from gathering to gathering to gathering. I mean, for God's sakes, let's do something. And nobody wants to do that do because it means some paradigm shift. It means some ruffling of feathers of a standard operating procedure. Um, we don't believe in standard operating procedure. We believe- Especially when it comes in science. It comes to science, yes. Whatever the data and robust data, repeatable data, um, uh, uh, points a direction. It doesn't have to be absolute. A given direction. That's that's the way we we have to go, and and we really need to address it. The other disparity is African Americans and Hispanics. Um, they African Americans as much as data in some series as much as four times greater risk, but we think it's actually much more than that. It's not being diagnosed. Wow. The subject of my PhD was this disparity and the fact that the majority of the African Americans don't even get diagnosed because once they have dementia, they family just takes care of them and doesn't get the diagnosis because of the resources. Remember, public health is about access, 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 mm -hmm. and the access isn't there. And that epidemic is destroying entire communities and nobody's addressing it. Same thing with Hispanic communities, but it's actually even more than just race. It's socioeconomic because it comes to access, access, access. You go to West Virginia, uh, white population or Pittsburgh, certain places, it's not, it's the disparities related to lifestyle, mm -hmm. food, massive, influence on cognition and other things as well and Stress. you know having been in this field for a long time i guess we are old um you know having done residencies all that building and all that. <laughs> <laughs> we've been in this field for a long time and you know you go to these conferences these incredible conferences a matter of fact one of the um, alzheimer's association conference was in toronto just a couple of years ago um and you know you hear research uh, research curriculum about neuroimaging, about uh, molecular uh, models, about animal research, which Those don't poor really mice. reflect on human beings at all. And you, all this money spent, all this time spent on finding a treatment, which is not wrong, which is absolutely needed. But there's so much conversation going around treatment that everybody's forgetting this huge major mm -hmm. aspect, the prevention aspect. And you know, there's data that shows that if we are able to push back Alzheimer's disease by five years, if we are able to delay it for five years, the cost of Alzheimer's disease will be cut in half. Wow. And now let me tell you about the cost. Yeah. The cost is formidable and astronomical. It's be astronomical. Um, the third costliest disease is cancer. All cancers combined at 70 billion or so. The second costliest disease is heart disease at 120 billion or so. Alzheimer's by itself, direct cost, Medicare and everything else, 290 billion. Indirect cost, wow. another 240 billion. Indirect wow. is cost to the families, lost time, things that are not being covered by, by, by Social Security and all of that. So already 500 billion. And that number is rising rapidly because although we're succeeding in treating and maintaining with diabetes and heart disease, Alzheimer's, there's no treatment. We're fooling ourselves with these $100 billion or $100 million studies that 100% failure so far, 100%. Mm -hmm. And the rise is massive. Mortality from Alzheimer's in the last 15 years, 145% increase. And wow. it's rising. Well, that for stroke and cancer 
and HIV, all of that are in the decline, you know, things that were considered chronic diseases of aging. It's just remarkable that there's such a disparity between other diseases and Alzheimer's. Yeah. Right. That's... So before we get into how to prevent it, I think the general conception is that this is considered our genetic dis- disease, which means that not much can be done because if you have the genes, you can't do much. And how do you guys respond to that? So, you know, all diseases have a genetic component to them, right? Uh, we are genetic beings. Um, but, you know, there are some diseases that are highly driven by genes, um, you know, which, which essentially points to its penetrance. It has a mm-hmm. high penetrance. And diseases like Huntington's disease that we always bring um, the example for. If you have Huntington's disease, if a father has it, you know, the son is more definitely mm-hmm. going to get it. It's just a matter of when, depending on the, 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 the repeats and the genetic pattern. Um, that's a purely genetic. I was about to uh, uh, test you guys right here. USMLE test. <laughs> what chromosome? No, I'm just kidding. Chromosome four. Yeah, but but you know by the number of CAG repeats how penetrant it is going to be and when it's going. You know, it, right. it's that level of penetrance. But when it comes to chronic diseases of aging and especially with Alzheimer's disease, it's a polygenetic disease, which means that it's not one gene; it's multiple genes. Um, and it, the, the, way, the way you get the disease depends on how your body responds to different kinds of assaults, whether it's um, a blood pressure, whether it's fat metabolism, whether it's glucose metabolism. Um, and, you know, the, the most important gene that everybody's talking about, ApoE4, even if you have two copies of the ApoE4, 50% of the population never developed the disease. So even when you're very high risk for it, the pure forms of Alzheimer's disease where, you know, you have the gene and you're definitely going to get it is only about 3% of all Alzheimer's disease. And those genes are presenilin-1, presenilin-2, and APP or amyloid precursor protein. APP is found in Down syndrome cases. You know, most Down syndromes, if they live beyond 40, they all develop, almost all of them develop Alzheimer's disease because of the- um, Redundancy of APPG on chromosome 21. Wow. So I'd love to get into a little bit more like the actual mechanisms that cause Alzheimer's. So if you have, say you have like a copy of this ApoE4 gene, what has to happen? And then like lifestyle wise for this gene to be, I guess, expressed in a way that Alzheimer's would develop and like, what is it actually doing to the brain and how does that all work? So as, as we know, uh, although the, the, the main function of a gene or gene product, which is protein or glycoprotein, can be singular, but more complex than that. So the singular um, um, uh, or the dominant characteristic or manifestation or phenotypic expression, sorry, let me get simplify. The, the, <laughs> the, the dominant expression of that gene is lipid transport, fat transport. How efficient it is in transporting fat from point A to point B so it doesn't get clogged up in the wall, walls of the arteries and so on and so forth. And, and this, this. so we have several versions of it. We have ApoE2, ApoE3, and ApoE4. If you have ApoE2, you won the lottery. That's an efficient lipid transporter. You're not, it's not going to let anything go away. It's just going to grab and pull it back. And, and uh, obviously, it doesn't do that. But, but it's, it's a really good transporter. I like the picture. <laughs> I know. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's very efficient in what it does. And, and ApoE3 is a wash. But ApoE4 is not an efficient transporter. So people who have ApoE4 have lipid transport problems. But beyond lipid, there's also other things like its relationship with amyloid, uh, which is the bad protein that accumulates uh, as we get older. 
uh, its relationship with inflammation as well. But it really has to do with our you know, life, how we deal with environment, with food and everything else. So APOE4 is a, is a lifestyle gene, we say. It's a gene that relates to lipid transport. Other ways that people get it is through their relation with glucose or energy metabolism. We did a study in, in Haines, which is a large uh, database. It's actually a nationwide representative database um, <clears throat> and showed that even when we excluded diabetics and just looked at pre-diabetics as, as, as defined by certain uh, rigorous terminology, you, you've, then even the pre-diabetics who are not controlled, which usually are not, you know, we don't treat pre uh, mostly, they had lower cognitive state. So even pre-diabetics have, so there's a, that direction of glucose metabolism and, uh, that, that also puts you in that direction. In fact, that's why every once in a while, some people from Harvard or somewhere else can say, oh, it's type three diabetes. No, that's one of the pathways, but there are other pathways. Others are inflammation. Those people who have repetitive infection or repetitive head traumas, their path is through inflammation or repetitive inflammation or out of control inflammation. And so that's, and then there's oxidation. So we say four pathways, glucose or energy metabolism, lipid metabolism, oxidation, and, and um, um, uh, inflammation. Although inflammation is the down pathway or, uh, you know, and most of them, but you can come to it from different directions. So how do you control inflammation best? How do you control um, uh, glucose metabolism best? How do you control lipid metabolism best? How do you control oxidation best? Lifestyle. What's the number one determinant of oxidative damage in the body? Unless you're in Chernobyl, uh, although I shouldn't make those kind of jokes. I got ripped apart in a... <laughs> somebody <laughs> he said, as somebody was making a statement then in one of our live um, uh, talk sessions we have on Friday, they said, you know, what, you keep talking about seaweed, but what about the um, um, uh, radiated uh, seaweed that's coming from uh, Japan? I said, uh, if it glows, don't eat it. And they just ripped me apart. Like, oh. Trying to make light of things. Yeah. It no, joke. it was a joke. But, but, um, but it's, it's critical to kind of understand that the relation with food with oxidation, what foods that you have in excess or abnormal have oxidative pathways, fats, right? Lipid metabolism, what? Now we know it's mostly not so much cholesterol, although that has a little bit of part of it, and so the picture is more complex, but still in that direction. But saturated fat has a big part in it, right? And then on the other side, we have um, um, our glucose. I mean, glucose is not just um, uh, sugar. It's not uh, avoiding gluten. Well, we just, and then we're gonna avoid, we'll talk about that later. It's about fat as well. So it's sugar and fat. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's all about lifestyle. And then there's the component of stress and what stress does to the limbic hypothalamic pituitary pathway or what we call the pituitary bomb that's released with every stressful situation so it's lifestyle and we if we address it comprehensively not in a gimmick way where there are some holes and you're going to fill it up with some vitamin deficiencies i'm not going to name names we know who's written the books on those and it's real life that's cheap free in your home and your life for we say as much as 80 to 90 percent of strokes and degenerative diseases, depending on which degenerative disease, again, that's, we have to be, uh, can be avoided. Wow. That's, see, I, I wish that's being taught in medical curriculum. So 
It can definitely be prevented. Um, the second question is, can these diseases, once they have progressed, can like, you know, Alzheimer's, can it be reversed or you, you can only do something about it before it takes place? I'm really glad you asked that because um, we made a post about it yesterday because we were listening to this video of a very prominent person actually, in the plant-based world. Um, throwing out terminology like reversal of Alzheimer's disease, reversal of Alzheimer's disease. Not a neurologist, and by the way. It was cringeworthy because there are a lot of people who say that they have reversed Alzheimer's disease, and that is absolutely not true. By the time Alzheimer's disease uh, or advanced dementia is manifested itself and it's showing its signs and symptoms, and you can identify it through neuroimaging and through neuropsychological tests, there is, there is very little that can be done. What we're saying is you can prevent that going towards that direction. And perhaps even in mild cognitive impairment, which is a pre-pre-Alzheimer's state, where you have mild cognitive issues, but you're able to do all of your activities of daily living. These are very specific, defined conditions. In those situations, there have been clinical trials to show that when a healthy lifestyle has been instituted, eating more plants, exercising, getting rid of uh, the vascular risk factors, you know, a good percentage of them were able to reverse their symptoms, but never for uh, advanced Alzheimer's disease. And we want to make sure that that message is loud and clear because there are a lot of people living with Alzheimer's disease. And we, we see these people and we see their lovely families taking care of them. And it's one of the most painful pictures ever to live with a condition where you know you're not going to get better and you're working hard to do it, but it's, nothing is happening. So it's important to set um, appropriate expectations and not give people false hope. Um, oh, yeah. I was just going to say thank you. Thank you for stating that like again, so clearly. And I think like, we're not giving false hope, but we're also giving so much hope to the people that perhaps like they're scared of developing it in their future. If one of their relatives had it and you listed so many factors that are so like in our control. And I think like focusing on those is really where we should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't need to, we don't need to contrive uh, and contort data just because we want to be on Oprah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, we uh, and and uh, you know we were told uh, that, uh, by somebody else that if we had just put and we could have easily done this because we were the only ones doing preventive neurology, not like some gluten thing. Um, we were doing the research, fifty publications, and so we uh, uh, we were, if we just hinted at the fact that we could reverse Alzheimer's, we would sell two million extra books. We can't say that, and nobody would challenge us. I mean, today's media world, who challenges facts? Nobody would have challenged us. But we said we can't. And now people who are not neurologists, but they want to get the highlight with a few patients making bombastic statements. And then what they'll do is once they, they get the accolades, then they're going to pull back. Oh, we meant MCI. No, you already made the big claim. Mm -hmm. You created false hope and pain and suffering and spending. That's not acceptable. I don't care how big you are in a plant-based world or otherwise. Ah, we are here to fight. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's facts. We're we're going to make sure that 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 language is is clear and that nobody takes advantage of people who are desperate. No, I agree because um, this topic is very dear to my heart. I lost my grandmother to Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and I'm always worried about my parents as well because especially my mom because that's you know it seems to be common in her family Alzheimer's mm -hmm. is um, so that's why like this topic is very dear to my heart. So let's talk about um, specific foods that help with brain health and how um, 
I guess we can start with how the brain develops and the influence diet and nutrition has on brain development. And then we can go into more specific foods. Wow. So I'll start, start with day one development that then you can start with so Aisha. <laughs> yeah. Aisha is um, uh, her uh, master's is towards um, um, nutrition and nutritional epidemiology. epidemiology. And uh, while at, at Columbia, uh, in the mornings, uh, she would do stroke uh, ICU. And at night, she would go to culinary school because you can't just throw salads at people over and over again. And plant-based and, and healthy food can be so tasty. So that's important. If you want to connect, you have to make it accessible and not top down. Eat this, you know. Uh, you can only eat so many carrot dogs. Um, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> they're great. I love carrot dogs. But, but it's, it's important to kind of have that. The human brain, especially developmentally, it is all about the brain. It's all about the brain. If you guys have a proclivity, it's neuro. It's the fastest growing organ in the universe besides viruses and bacteria in the first few months. It's doubling by day. It's neuronal connections. It's a glial cell structures. It's ultimate infrastructure that's being laid down by minutes in the pre-birth and then in the first few years of life. In fact, that's not even done. The myelination happens all the way up to the age 20 or so. But pre-myelination, pre-connection, the neuronal infrastructure, and then there's a point at age four, five or something, where then says, stop, we're gonna do some killing. Some, this is like one of those uh, uh, Trentino, uh, Trentino, what is his name? The, Quentin Tarantino the, uh, movies? Quentin Tarantino movies with that sort. And starts apoptosis, programmed cell death. That's the first time that somebody put uh, apoptosis. Okay. I like that analogy. Yeah, so it starts <laughs> calling, it starts killing cells to create an ultimate infrastructure of the brain. That infrastructure is what you're lay, uh, left with. It's, we call it brain reserve. There's cognitive reserve, brain reserve. That structure that's left is not by luck. It's environment and genes, but environment as well. So here's, we've said this again. We really think that you can actually create a different environment and structure for children's brains very early on with the food, environment, sound, and structure, and all that. And by the way, it's not baby Mozart either. It's, uh, so it's much more complex than that. But the food you give is different, and it's important. That's why we're doing this comprehensive review on fat and the developing brain and fat and the and aging brain. So the requirements are going to be different. There's a whole fight right now in the plant-based world and the non-plant-based world, whether fat is good or fat. It's not that simple. It's more complex as development. By the way, saturated fat is never good. Mm -hmm. Butter will never be back. Well, not the kind of butter that they're talking about, as the Time magazine covers it. But the requirements are going to be different. We're always going to need omega-3s and um, poly and monosaturated fat for the brain because that's something that the brain doesn't make. The rest of the fat, plenty. And as Aisha will, will point out, the structural component of brain and all that. But the developing brain requires a profound amount of well-balanced development. Let's not be magical. We are magical as, it, as if evolution or the world made it. If we just live right, it's going to be fine. No, I was the uh, deputy minister of health in Afghanistan. 15% of the population was hypothyroid. Imagine what that does to the brain of the mm -hmm. developing child. The first program we did was immunization, but the second we did was uh, iodine um, uh, fortification of bread and things of that nature. And it's not magical that you, know, you can reproduce and still have cognitive decline. 
So evolution didn't care how well you did it, but you did it. You're still better than a bacteria as far as you know, traversing your environment. So, but we can optimize. And it's not hacking. It's real life stuff. Better, more comprehensive eating, not you know, the superfood. You can't just eat blueberries all day as much as you think blueberries. So it's got to be comprehensive. And physical activity, mental activity, the kind of mental activity that brain of a child requires is, is very complex. And that's what we talk about. Right. So that's the development as far as fat and, and food and everything else is concerned. Um, as you can tell, we can go on and on and on for days with you guys. Um, I love that. It's such an amazing topic. But um, just coming back to your question specifically about food, we try we try to talk about dietary patterns more than food specifically. Um, there's always this fear of reductionism in, in nutrition where you focus on the superfoods. There are no superfoods. Yeah, some foods may actually stand out when it comes to their dietary inflammatory indices or you know, their, their antioxidant profile, et cetera, like blueberries and greens and beans. But it's the dietary pattern that matters the most. And in all of the studies um, around the world, whether it's from the U.S. or U.K. or from, from uh, you know, anywhere else, uh, the dietary pattern that stands out is plant predominant, which essentially means that it is, you know, jam-packed with plants and minimal saturated fats in its sources. So less meat, less dairy, less um, you know, coconut oil or other um, tropical oils that are very high in saturated fats. Um, and let's just take the Mediterranean diet because I was very intrigued by the Mediterranean diet and I'm actually studying it um, in, in, in a population called the California Teacher Study. Um, when you look at the Mediterranean diet construct, and I, and I want to pick on this because it's been studied significantly. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a dietary score. So adherence to the score is, uh, is given a specific number. You get a high number if you adhere to the Mediterranean diet pattern when you eat vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes or beans, nuts and seeds, and lower ratio of saturated fats. So high polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fats, and low saturated fats. So they look at the ratio. And also... Um, higher sources of omega-3 fatty acids, whether it comes from fish or plants, et cetera. But omega-3 fatty acids, the DHA is the component that is looked at in Mediterranean diet. And you get a low score when you consume meat, poultry, and dairy. Why? Again, sources of saturated fats. So Mediterranean diet essentially looks like a plant-predominant diet. Yeah, they talk about fish, but we know that you don't have to eat fish to get your DHA. You can get your DHA from uh, algae sources. Um, the conversion of ALA to DHA is very low. So we say, you know, the best source would be for you to take a lot of nuts and seeds, especially walnut, chia seeds, and flax seeds. But it's, it's great to supplement with an algae-based DHA if necessary, if you're not getting enough. And Dean hinted at it earlier. So not all fat is bad. Mm -hmm. It depends that the type of fat matters. And poly and monounsaturated fats are um, essentially great for brain health. And whenever you look at different papers, when people switch from a standard American diet or a Western diet to a Mediterranean-ish diet, it essentially means they're lowering their saturated fats and increasing their unsaturated fats, and you see the benefit. Lower risk of Alzheimer's, lower risk of other dementias, lower risk of saturated fats, and it's we're true. not even... Uh, of stroke, and we're not even going to address all the other chronic diseases of aging. So you see that pattern consistently. 
the only fat that the brain needs on a daily basis is DHA. Um, it doesn't need cholesterol because cholesterol is a part and parcel of the infrastructure of the brain. And the brain itself makes enough cholesterol to maintain that infrastructure. So you don't have to actually consume it. And even if you did, it would never pass through the blood-brain barrier to go into the brain. Matter of fact, it actually causes a lot of damage getting there to the endothelial, the endothelial linings of blood vessels. And that's how you see you know, white matter disease or atherosclerosis or arteriosclerosis, which means hardening of the arteries with lots of you know, saturated fat consumption. Or damage to the blood-brain barrier, which is basically endothelial lining, right? right? And that damage is significant because that environment that the brain and the spinal cord is maintained in is very hermetically, it's quite hermetically sealed. Not much can get through it. But as we get older, because of these kind of damages, the, the ones that we talked about, fat, you know, the, that, that seal is, is damaged. And that's why, again, somebody says, oh, it's an infectious disease. Because when they looked at the CSF of people who had Alzheimer's, they saw CMV and this and that. No, it's because now it's leaky after the damage. And now you're seeing things cross over and then you're actually seeing the, the outcomes. Right. So that's the nutrition. Yeah. So, so the key is more plant-based diet and lowering saturated fat specifically as much as possible. And you see that in the women's health study, you see it in the California teacher study, Chicago. which you, you see it in the Chicago um, uh, health and aging project in the Kaiser Permanente study. I mean, I can list studies for you guys. And, you know, one of the proxies of this dietary pattern is cholesterol levels, especially during midlife. We have studies showing that when midlife cholesterol levels are high, LDL is high, the risk of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are high as well. In one series, it was as high as 53%. Untreated high cholesterol during midlife mm -hmm. increased the risk of uh, Alzheimer's disease by 53%. And even moderate cholesterol, you know, the ones that don't really necessarily uh, need medication, but the doctor tells the patients, hey, your cholesterol's high, keep an eye on it and lower it, but it never, it never gets to that. That even increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So it's, it's so important to um, keep our LDLs in check and eat more plants. Yeah, no, I love that. And all the studies you mentioned, we're going to put them in the show notes for people. So you talked a lot about nuts and seeds as well as like meat and the saturated fat in it. Let's talk about these three fats that we haven't touched on, eggs, coconut oil, and avocado. Sure. So, um, so eggs. So the studies on eggs, you know, unfortunately, most of them have been published by the egg industry, right? So there's this huge bias there. We know that what egg yolks have more cholesterol than your body needs or, your, you know, the, it's, it's way above the recommended daily allowance for cholesterol. It's just one egg yolk. And there have been studies published in, in great journals, peer-reviewed journals that shows that egg consumption was associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. Um, and as far as, uh, you know, some of the other components are concerned, people have exaggerated the importance of things like choline for brain health. It was never an issue. And then suddenly it's an issue. And you see some biases from people who have reported these things. So, you know, it's not necessary at all for brain health. And you can get all of the nutrients from plants as well. As far as coconut oil is concerned, coconut and palm oil are one of the few plant-based oils that are more than 90% saturated fats. So we know that saturated fat is associated with, uh, with um, unhealthy outcomes, whether it's neurodegenerative diseases or vascular diseases. 
we don't recommend it at all. And there have been studies to show that, you know, coconut oil actually raises your LDL level. So it's best to stay away from it as much as possible. And as far as avocados are concerned, it's a great source of, you know, unsaturated fats. Um, and uh, obviously it's very high in calories, which is another issue. You don't want to, you know, completely overdo the intake of calories because that in itself can cause a lot of inflammation and other vascular risk factors in your body. But consuming avocados, you know, in small amounts, that's great. The three-dimensionality comes in as far as this. Um, whether you have a, a disease state, right. how bad is your disease state? And, um, and, and that changes a little bit. If, if you have a significant cardiovascular disease, and we talked with Essie and others about this. As um, Dr. Esselstyn. Yeah, um, and and it's and they're right. I mean, if somebody has end stage cardiovascular disease and and their arteries are clogged, absolutely, they should be much more rigid in, in all fats, um, and and reduce fat as much as possible. And total calories. As and well. total calories right. as well. So there's a little bit of a what, what I call three dimensional chess here. So uh, fat for the general population, especially at the public health level. I want to say that we think that it's okay to consume um, uh, mono and polyunsaturated fats, but even there, watch the calories because the one determinant of longevity, be it at the genetic level, chromatin, all the, the, uh, the longevity and antisenescence is calorie intake, isn't it? So watch your calorie intake. The, the revolution of the 20th century, the bad one, there were many bad ones, but this bad one was that we did, we created this amazing ability to calorie dense to create calorie dense foods and nutrient spars, mm -hmm. which, and on top of that, because we're survival beings, species, we're not supposed to live 80, 90 years. We're supposed to run from the bear, tiger, lion, uh, or sometimes cats, which I hate. I'm sorry, no, no, no sense to cats have allergies. And, and then reproduce and then die in our thirties. No evolution didn't care what you did in your forties, fifties, sixties, seventies. So yeah, so that's the key is to know that that's the, 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 the paradigm here. And to protect yourself, you have to be a little more nuanced as far as what we do. Now in public health, we can't say avoid this, this, and this, and this. There has to be some measure of openness to some saturated, uh, polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats, both because at lower level, there seems to be benefit. And also it's, it's going to open up the reality to the rest of the world. And that I'm glad you brought the concept of survival. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that bothers me so much, bothers both of us. I'm speaking for you too, Dean. Uh, all the time. Um, when, when you hear people talk about, you know, the, ancest the ancestors diet and the Paleolithic <laughs> period diet, did you even know that people didn't live beyond 30? Yeah, I mean, how are you <laughs> applying that? that principle at a day and age where we want to live beyond 90 years of age, you know, and, and the word yep. natural is thrown so lightly and so uselessly. What do you mean? Okay. Lightning is natural. Is it good for you? No. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's important to have a good context of what, what the data shows and what we're talking about in our circumstances. Thank you. Nuance and complexity. That's what we need more. <laughs> Okay, I just want to just ask one question while we were listing all the different types of fat. I just want to ask quickly about olive oil, just because you touched on the Mediterranean diet, and a lot of people think olive oil when they think of that. And yeah, yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. It's a touchy-feely subject, and there's a lot of uh, back and forth now in the plant-based world, and especially because of the great work that Dr. Esselstyn and some others have done. Um, like Dean said earlier, it just depends on on 
what your, your situation is, right? Mm-hmm. Olive oil, when you look at studies um, in Mediterranean diet studies or the MIND diet studies or the DASH diet studies, um, it, it's, it's helpful. Why? Because it's always been compared to a Western diet that was you know, uh, packed with saturated fats and trans fatty acids, which are both terrible for you. So compared to those terrible kind of fats, olive oil, which is you know, high in monounsaturated fats, seems to be beneficial. But if someone has you know, profound atherosclerosis and they have heart disease and they have other you know, issues with their vasculature, they need to be careful. We unfortunately so far don't have evidence whether a diet with extra virgin olive oil is better than a diet that is plant-based. A diet that is plant-based with extra virgin olive oil is better than the one without extra virgin olive mm-hmm. oil. Um, and we're hoping to do that. And there is a buzz and we're actually writing some protocols together to see if we can uh, continue you know, doing that work because it's so much needed. Yeah, no, that, I, I'm glad you guys are doing that because we <clears> definitely <throat> need that. I feel like that's such a common question. I want to go uh, back to- One, one thing yeah. I wanted to just add is um, have this term tattooed on your chest. <laughs> I mean, if you want to tattoo it. Or, or, or embroider it on your shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's better. She's much better. Yeah. To the best of our knowledge today. Right, yeah. It's the most humble term in the world, and it's a scientific term. And people, even in the plant-based world, they make a religion out of things. And it's not. It's to the best of our knowledge today, this is what we know, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean we, because we don't know absolute, absolutism is the cause of all our ills, political and otherwise. To the best of our knowledge, the direction seems to be in this direction, and we're going to go. I mean, we this has worked. In fact, the rockets were created that way. The airplanes were created that way. The, yeah, those those sciences are a little harder sciences. Science moves this way. This way. Yeah. And and absolutism or relying on thought leaders. The thought leader is the next person that came up with the best thought, which is right. you. There is. This is not being arrogant. This is actually letting data lead the way. So uh, that's, that's our knowledge to date. Um, it, it's not disrespecting the past. It's not disrespecting people who have done great work. In fact, those people, who, if they're, if they're true scientists, they would always say, this is what we found in this study and it works and we're going to take it forward until some new data comes up. Yeah. And that, that's the way it should be. If it's anything else, their ego is coming into it and it's about them and not the science. So, so please, being medical students, being the future, have that embroidered on your shirt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually love that. That's a great advice. I want to go back to what Aisha was talking about in regards to like the Paleolithic times, because people keep referring to that and then they ignore the people who are currently living, like the longest living societies around the world, the blue zones. Yeah. They ignore that science, like what we have found from there, but then they want to follow what people did thousands of years ago who didn't even live that long. So I actually want to touch more on the paleolithic diet. And then I also want to get into the ketogenic diet and how these relate to brain health versus like a more whole food plant-based diet. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a diet war going on. Um, and we all know, you know, who the perpetrators are. Um, I think the, the, the reason is we've failed as a society and especially as, you know, members of uh, public health administrators, we're all in public health, right? There is this um, bias towards um, health uh, 
professionals and doctors and scientists because people are always looking for absolute answers. Um, and, and, and in that journey of finding absolute answers, if something doesn't work or if something works partially, people lose hope and they want to jump on a different bandwagon. Um, paleo diet came up with just this, you know, uh, new fashion of addressing health and eating more, more of the food products that are, you know, that are addictive, that are healthy. Um, and there's no evidence behind it. Um, there's no suggested data to show that people who consume the paleolithic diet actually lived longer, had less disease. And it just kind of stuck. And now people are understanding that it's more than just that, that living in an era where there's so much complexity and um, there's, there's so much variability in dietary patterns, there's more than that. Um, and, th th and then there's the other human folly. The major human folly is confirmation bias. <clears throat> comfort is what we seek. Survival and comfort is our evolutionary number one factor, even beyond reproduction. Comfort is what we seek. And that which we know, it doesn't matter how bad it is, is comforting. I call it the battle of the past protectors and the future seekers. Future seekers are crazy. Why would you seek some, something new that's unknown and not certain? Well, that's actually 5% or so of the population, which has shaped the history of mankind. That's a powerful concept to go into the future, but there's always going to be resistance. Confirmation bias is the number one tool for protecting the past. Confirmation bias is, I know this, and if I have limited amount of time, I'm going to find things that confirms that. And if you go into Google, I tell people, I challenge you, put any two relationships, put aluminum saves lives, and you'll find somebody that said that. Oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, um, arsenic you know, save this person from cancer. And you'll find somebody who says that. Just because you found it, it doesn't make it real. In fact, even if it was in a protocol format, it doesn't make it real. The standards of what should be applied to populations are much more rigid. Is there population data that shows this? By the way, ketogenic diet, no population data. Mm -hmm. That over time. Um, and we will talk about that. And I'm not completely against ketogenic, but I'm saying that uh, population. Is there retrospective data looking back? Is there prospective data where they took a population and controlled it going forward, randomized control or other ones? Is there, you know, st multiple studies like in reviews looking at it? And if there's multiple of these directions pointing in the same direction, even there, you don't say, absolutely, here it is. But you say there's profound amount of data showing that this is good. That's why even with plant-based, here's, here's for the sake of um, transparency. We are vegans for three reasons. Environment, ethics, well, ethics, environment, and health. But the science of health has got to stand on science. Mm -hmm. and, and it's uncompromisable then because why would people believe us otherwise? Mm -hmm. It has to stand by on its own. So that's a transparency because, oh, they're biased. No, of course, everybody's biased. The moment you get out of bed, you've started with a biased directional uh, attentional uh, signal, right? Uh, attentional signal that po points you in a direction. But can you have, do you have a check on your bias? Or are you just letting your bias go rampant, like Joe Rogan and others? I mean, no matter how much you present to them, it doesn't matter. They just keep finding from the infinite world of internet 
that's why um, uh, that, the, the, the paleo, the South Beach, then it just comes up, comes up with the different names, but all it is is protecting their bacon. Mm -hmm. And it's not about that. It's about protecting populations that are dying by the millions from bad food and introducing even a, a so the, the, the selection bias uh, that, that we have in our ability is a big problem. And how to bring the language to welcome people to the conversation of science, which is imperfect, but it's directed us pretty well so far. I hope that was a little contorted, but we got there, I think. No, we need to. We need we needed to go there. Yeah, yeah no, I love that. <laughs> that was so well said. Um, so, okay, for people who might want to know exactly why the ketogenic diet is not good for your brain health, could you just elaborate a bit on that? Sure. So ketogenic diet actually started um, because it was uh, it was good for a small population of children who had intractable epilepsy. That's where it originated from. So there's um, there there are several um, seizure types. Uh, one of them, Lennox Gastaut, and it's a very difficult seizure to treat. Um, and after multiple medications, ketogenic diet is also uh, recommended. And it helps, you know, um, control the seizures uh, to, to a great extent. extent. Yeah. Um, it's never meant to be something long-term because ketogenic diet is actually quite harmful uh, for vascular health. That's what it, where it originated from. And then people used it for massive weight loss before any surgery or things of that nature. Um, and because it came from that, you know, the world of neuroscience, researchers were interested to look and see whether it had the same beneficial effects for Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and others. But so far, you know, all of the studies that have, done, that have been done in the world of um, neurology and for Alzheimer's disease specifically have not shown any benefit at all. As a matter of fact, there are no randomized controlled trials long enough and in a large population enough to show us that it's first feasible or second beneficial. And this, this whole conversation that you hear on Twitter and on Instagram about certain influencers promoting ketogenic diet comes from very flimsy, weak studies that don't have a definitive um, result. And again, it's because of confirmation bias. People just like eating meat and high fatty mm -hmm. foods. That's basically what it is. Now, we're not completely closed to this. I mean, again, right. again we repeat, and, and this, uh, people like solid, well-circumscribed, you know, uh, the, define, this is who I am, this is, no, this is a science. So um, we're open to data. So far, there's been nothing beyond six months. Mm -hmm. Nothing beyond, I mean, what does that even mean? And by the way, even in our plant-based world, now they're doing a study on Alzheimer's in six months. Six months, I could smile at you six months. No, if I smile at you, you'll have worse in cognition. <laughs> if I should smile at you for six months, you will do better. Six months means nothing in cognition. We're doing the largest study in the country, community-based largest study on co cognition and lifestyle. And, and of course, there was a sense of hurry. Who's going to come out first? People are actually creating documentaries before they even did research. It's bewildering. Yeah. That should tell you their motive, motives. But we said, if it's less than three years, it's meaningless. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Especially for a slow process like that, right? Absolutely. Well, and, keto and ketogenic diets are so high in saturated fat. And you've already covered 
how that's not safe for you for your cardiovascular health or your brain oh yeah that's right oh absolutely i mean people do it for weight loss and you know as you know it's because of this massive initial um, loss of water from the body that the weight goes down drastically but what people don't really understand how bad it is for for the body and especially for vascular organs like the brain and the kidneys and the liver um, we're just not, our biology is not made for that high amount of fat. We're not, we can't process it. And obviously when, you know, younger people do it, they have more resilience, but it just frightens me to know that people who already have vascular risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or prediabetes, when they're put on a ketogenic diet, it's just horrible. Um, and so, um, yeah, no, we, we don't recommend it at all. And that's coming from a vascular neurologist. I think you have a pretty good take on the research here. Um, I'd like to, well, by definition, basically ketogenic diets, they limit your carbohydrate, carbohydrate intake, but there's a pretty big role for carbohydrates in brain health as well, isn't there? So, yeah, so uh, we only have four building blocks, you know, uh, nucleic acids. Uh, we, we, we can't eat that. Um, well, we can, but it's, uh, it's got its own... Uh, problems, uh, protein, carbohydrates, and fat, right? Um, the, as we're talking about macro, um, uh, protein is not the best source of energy. Um, so then that leaves fat and carbohydrates. And using fat as your source of energy means that it, you're going to create ketone bodies. Um, uh, it's more complex, but basically ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are small enough to pass the blood-brain barrier. In fact, they're small enough to even pass the cellular uh, wall um, and and I, the analogy I give is uh, it's almost like a one night stand. Is that what I said? Yeah, I don't know. It's politically incorrect, but that's okay. Uh, you know, when you when you consume your energy from a complex carbohydrate, first it has to be broken down to simpler carbohydrates, and that takes time. And that time is important because then the cellular system is not overwhelmed by glucose because that overwhelm matters. If there's too much glucose around the cell those receptors that have to bind to insulin, if they see too much glucose, they actually go in. So then you, you become insulin sen uh, sensitive, down, right? Down regulation. Down regulation. Yeah. So the right amount of glucose, how do you get the right amount of glucose? By slow release. And there's a whole thing with beans and how they have the second meal phenomenon, which slows down the release and all that. So the food that gives you a slow release of glucose are the ones that are bound to fiber, that are bound in, in, in complex form and break down and gives in small amounts, slow release. Well, and then it gets, insulin binds, and then the glucose binds to a cellular receptor, then it comes in, and then there's the cyclic AMP and six other pathways inside the cell before it gets to uh, the mitochondria. And I, the analogy I give is that this young man who's trying to get to a young person, the other person, man, woman, uh, a partner's home and knocks at the door. If there are too many suitors, the door is never going to open. That door is going to be shut, wood, panel, everything. But if there's one person, nice guy, um, comes in or girl and opens up, the father comes in and then the grandparent and then, but it's a huge family distillation. Um, and, and then you get to the mitochondria. You can make your own imagination. Uh, and then even in the mitochondria, there's a whole process. You guys are going through this, especially second year, uh, what's going on. Keto, ketone bodies, they're like you know, right through the wall, right through the window, right through the mitochondria, right? And then heavy amounts of energy to the cell. It's like putting a pinto. You're too young to know what a pinto is, Ford pinto. 
and putting it on nitro fuel 24 hours a day. Yeah, you're going to get the immediate boost. But what does that do to the engine over time? It burns it. It burns it. I mean, that's a rough analogy, terrible analogy. It might be refuted in the future. I'm open to that. But it's a good analogy in the, for the moment, given the different dynamics that exist there. Yeah. So uh, to understand it in a different way, you know, the brain cells and neurons run exclusively on glucose under normal circumstances. Keto, ketone bodies are created under um, situations of duress and distress and starvation. And why would you want to put yourself under so much stress for the brain to benefit? It doesn't make any sense. And, it, you know, the body had created the system where uh, the brain, this energy-hungry organ, could survive periods of, you know, immense stress, whether it's disease, it was disease or some environmental uh, factors or starvation. That's how we have that mechanism in place. Otherwise, to thrive, to grow, to, to stay healthy, it's all glucose. And that's broken down from complex carbohydrates in, but, in, in, in specific amounts, like Dean said. And there's a, that begs the question. So what about uh, these intermittent fasting or fasting? Doesn't that keto? We believe, and again, remember what we're saying here, the data so far. Uh, the data shows that it's not the ketone bodies that is protecting you. It's the low calorie state that is, uh, that's turning on the, uh, the longevity genes and anti-senescent genes. So that's it. Now, are we open to a plant-based? Because we think that a saturated fat-based uh, ketone diet, by the time it actually gets to your brain, it's almost like saying that you have this massive machine that, that's tanks that has these metal things on its tires trying to get to the cell. Yeah, by the time it gets to the cell, it might help, but it will destroy the highway going there. We have 400 miles of vasculature in the brain plus the endothelial lining of the, of the uh, blood-brain barrier. Those we know by, by all the previous research that saturated fat damages endothelial lining we know by all the other studies that saturated fat damages the uh, microvasculature of the brain. So we have that data already. Now, if people, and we have friends that want to study this and we are very open to this, a non-saturated fat ketogenic diet, just to see, to, to delineate better, yeah, we're definitely open to that because we think that the, the saturated fat pathway is not the way. Is the non-saturated fat or polyunsaturated fat pathway the way, maybe, Maybe it's going to give us new data, but is that going to be public health? Meaning limit your carbs, eat only saturated, I'm sorry, poly and monounsaturated fats for a general public health recommendation. I see that hard to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like say, it's so commendable that you guys are just always about what the research says. And I just have to emphasize that again, that like you're not married to this certain ideology and you're just open to like again what what does the research research say and it always comes back to that and yeah. like say as medical students like we love that so much <laughs> um i would like to just maybe ask about like talking about research there's been some i guess controversial studies that have come out recently talking about like vegan diets being bad for brain health um, I think it's usually like they cite like a deficiency in a certain nutrient like choline or something like that. Do you guys just want to touch on this briefly to share your thoughts? We do a lot yeah. of uh, instantaneous, or what is the term? Uh, um, uh, live sessions on uh, whenever one of these papers come to review them with an open mind, but then it always turns out to be a myth-busting expedition. 
So we've done one on the latest one, which was a stroke paper, and, and then another one on choline. Uh, and, 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 and so, yeah, Aisha. Was... Yeah, so um, I, know, I know which study you were talking, you're talking about. Um, there was this one paper that came out by Derbyshire. She's a, she's a nutritionist. I think she's a nutrition scientist. And she wrote a very you know, lengthy article that was considered as research, but it actually was just an opinion, by the way. It was an opinion that choline is important and it's, um, you know, the, the lack or the deficiency of choline is associated with low intelligence and problems with IQ and depression and so on and so forth. And um, she, um, she basically quoted a couple of papers that were poor quality papers saying that this is the amount of uh, choline you need and you need to get that much and higher and you can only get it by consuming ACE and meat products or animal products. But when you look at the research, um, that number was assigned in a disease state in a very small population Neonatal. of people who had issues with their liver metabolism. So it wasn't a population study. It wasn't reproduced. It wasn't validated by another independent group. And it was funded by, you know, uh, industries that had uh, major interest, interest in, in, in that finding. So from multiple angles, when you look at those numbers, it really doesn't make any sense. And how did choline just become an issue when we never had any recommended daily allowance? And when you know people who are on a plant-based diet, they live a long, healthy life, and they've never had any issues. Um, and unfortunately, the, the author was a member of the meat advisory panel. So there's a huge conflict there too. Mm -hmm. so it wasn't a research paper. It was just an opinion paper. Opinions don't mean anything in science. Um, and then as far as, um, what was the other question you asked? The stroke one. But, but yeah, the, the, the vegetarians and, and brain health is concerned, right? Yeah, the, the choline component, there are three levels of leap, right. three levels. One is all of a sudden choline is <clears throat> important. Um, where is the data that's solid enough to say that choline is important and this amount is important? That was a huge leap on, on some uh, neonatal data. That's it. Mm -hmm. Then from that, that, that meat is the only source of choline that you can get. And, and that was a huge leap or, or that kind of uh, meat and dairy and all that. And then the third leap was that, therefore, people who don't have uh, choline have cognitive deficiency. And that was a massive leap mm -hmm. because choline is found in acetylcholine. Therefore, you would expect people to have cognitive. And there was no data. So three levels of leap, yet this opinion paper was published in a major journal. I think it was British, British oh, Medical Journal. Medi British Medical Journal, like, yeah. which seems to be pu publishing a lot of those kind of things. Right. Uh, so it's important to know the source and know the biases, even us, know the biases. But then look at the science. The science was so weak at so many levels, yet it was published in every... Uh, uh, public magazine and everything that and you know how the news outlets sensationalize uh, the titles anyway so yeah no there's uh, I, I think people who who consume a plant-based diet get enough of choline from plants and it's it's a non-issue essentially mm -hmm. thank, the thank other you. two papers had to do with that uh, with hemorrhagic stroke that was one paper and the other one was depression and and plant-based diet that's right and, and the hemorrhagic one was interesting. The data was very solid data. It was, a, a, the, 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 it was from the um, Oxford EPIC study, I correct, believe, that correct. said that vegetarians are at a higher risk of stroke. 
But here's the, here's the rub. Uh, out of all the population, 25% of the population was misdiagnosed or un, undiagnosed. So you start with a data where 25%, because that can create a huge bias as far as the distribution of the population, doesn't it? If 25% of them are not well-diagnosed, well-defined, how do you know your distributions are right? In fact, it wasn't. In the natural population, 83% or so are ischemic strokes and 17% are hemorrhagic strokes, especially in the West. This was all over the place. So oh, you yeah. already knew that your population or your sample has been tainted. Misclassification Misclassification. Bias. Misclassification. And then from that, they came up with, they clumped vegans and vegetarians together. And we all know that in, in the general population, vegetarian doesn't mean healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they clumped them. And the number of vegans were so small that it was like negligible. And then from that, they came up saying that three people more had hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic stroke. Just three hem- people. Three people. Out of the 10,000. 10, uh, no, a 3% per 10,000 more hemorrhagic than others. That number is insignificant in a population that's already been misdiagnosed. Yeah, it's insignificant. It was truly classified, but on top of the, the misclassification bias, we don't even know whether those represented the sample properly. And within their own sample, 10 people died less if they ate plant-based diet from heart cardiovascular risks, but they never highlighted that. So the we, misclass- we don't know if that vegetarian group was eating like fruits and vegetables and not just vegan junk food or vegetarian True. junk food, right? True. In fact, there's yeah. hints of it that they were eating junk. And uh, the, whenever mm-hmm. you have data, there's supplementary data. And the supplementary data showed that they were not healthy uh, vegetarians. So there is so much wrong with that data, oh, yet yes. it gets published. Yeah. And then the depression one, oh my gosh, that's the, <laughs> that's the coup de croix. I mean, it's the top of the... Mi- we, we posted a video about it because it's, you know, um, Cass, to your point, um, staying to the current data and to the current science is so important. And for people to look at the details, because unfortunately, nobody has the time to go into the details. Nobody has the time to go to the website and download the supplemental data to go into the numbers and then compare and see whether it's true representation of what the national numbers uh, are. Um, so we, we, made a, we made a video about it. And we put it out there because there was a lot of concerns from people saying, hey, if I eat a vegetarian diet, does that mean I'm at a higher risk of depression? No, it wasn't like that. In that study, a lot of people were already having some symptoms of depression and psychological issues before they became vegetarians, but that was never reported properly. Significant. So there was already a um, a, a inclusion bias, selection bias to begin with. And that's a big thing in research. And, And what bewilders us, these big journals knowing this, why would they even publish this? And, and for depression, it's such a complex multifactorial disease, you know, to attribute only nutrition uh, with depression is wrong at so many levels. And then there's another thing very nuanced that we want to talk about is people who go outside of the norm, they're more aware of themselves, their relationship with the world, and how they report their relationship with the world. If you're giving up, um, you know, Fogo de Chao, which all your cousins and everybody is doing it. And then you, uh, this, this meat eating restaurant, basically. And, Are we going to get in trouble for saying their name? <laughs> I don't think they're that powerful yet. Okay. When they're the powerful, they'll come after us. Yeah. Or some, no, no, I'm just saying that it's a restaurant. It's, it's a steak, steak restaurant. Place, yeah. Steak restaurant. And, and then you're changing your, you're challenging the norms 
you're more you're cognizant. Yeah. You're being different. You're more cognizant of the world. You're more aware of the injustices you're in the, and, and public health and, and disparities. You're going to be more aware and sad about those things. And you're going to report it as such. That's not a small factor. Yeah. It's a reporting. It's a state of being. So you take plant-based people who have chosen to be different and are aware of the, in the, the, the disparities in our world. They're going to report that, 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 that emotion in their, in their, and when you ask them, especially when, in, a, in soft data, not real Beck's depression scale or geriatric depression scale or something else. So, so that's another little bias that they never report. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I'm so glad you went over all of that. I want to go back to the choline thing just for a quick second. And for our, in our other episodes, we have talked about choline and L-carnitine and how people who eat animal products when they consume choline L-carnitine, like, you know, it, your gut microbiome converts to a TMA, which gets converted by the liver, TMAO, and leading to cause like, you know, cardiovascular diseases. Um, I want to talk about, does that play a role in brain health? I'm guessing it would in strokes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, like you said, you know, just the path that you just mentioned, um, damage to the small vasculature in uh, the brain occurs uh, when when that process is is active. And um, one of the major, you know, after Alzheimer's, one of the major reasons why people have cognitive impairment is vascular issues, vascular cognitive impairment, um, and. Making sure that you know the TMAOs are minimized and making sure that we uh, address vascular health is critical. Um, it has it hasn't been studied directly, but we have all the other proxies and other studies that talk about it that point towards that direction and that uh, relationship. Yeah. yeah no. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, this is another topic that a lot of people these days, you know, research about and talk. But because it seems to be a common health problem, migraine. Um, and I feel like over time, more and more people are getting migraines. So what's the role of diet in migraines? So migraine and diet, um, we, we know that there are certain foods that, um, that trigger migraine. Migraine, again, is a very complex um, disease and there are different types of migraines. And it varies from you know, women to men and different ages. Um, so the risk factors vary significantly, um, but we know that there are certain food products that trigger uh, a lot of the migraines, you know, foods that are very high in nitrates, food that have a lot of preservatives, uh, you know, like pickles and wine, uh, foods that have um, some, some products like, you know, chocolate can actually be a trigger for it. There's not a lot of data on whether um, saturated fats and the things that we consider harmful for vascular health actually triggers migraines. Um, it's a very interesting area. And um, so far, there hasn't been much done uh, as far as the effects of plant-based diet on migraine is concerned. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's um, fair. I, I hate anecdotal stories, even in any direct yeah, I direction. Yeah, I bring ad- anecdotes. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 even I was my, about to bring my own, but I stopped as well for the same reason. Yeah, no, <laughs> my, my own. I mean, uh, my, my, uh, I had migraines every week for most of my life, even during medical school. It was just terrible. I, I remember times where I actually be, would be somewhere and I would be on my knees in front of people just, you know, you know, you know but, and then when I went plant-based, it has disappeared. Yeah, I but had migraines again, all my life. And yeah. they disappeared. And yeah. in the since I became whole food, like, since I went whole food plant based and became vegan, I've had one migraine in a year and a half. 
Wow. Yeah. I used to have it every week. That's yeah, amazing. Same here. Same here. Yeah, yeah. Dean Dean had such bad migraines that I recall when we went to one of his fellowship interviews, he couldn't do the interview because of the migraine and he was outside throwing up. Wow. And we had to like carry him to the car. It was that bad. And it happened like once or twice a week. None in the last 17 years. The reason I bring the anecdote thing is because even though we don't have sides, science is our side. Um, but I, I, if you open up the door of anecdote, there's an infinite. Anybody will say something like, you know, I started eating. I, get, I go back to aluminum. Today's the aluminum day for some reason. I started eating aluminum and my, you know, my prostate cancer went away. Uh, so, but hey, there it is. I mean, I, my personal experience um, uh, is that. And there's other people that have shown that, um, uh, that as well. But there are definite foods that have been associated with it, that, as Aisha pointed out to. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great to hear. <laughs> um, uh, we just had, like, we've talked so much about nutrition and brain health here that we just kind of wanted to touch on, like, a couple of other aspects because, as you mentioned, it's so there's so many different factors that play a role. And if you could just touch briefly, like, I know this could be a whole another conversation, but if you could just touch briefly on the role, perhaps like exercise and maybe stress and sleep play on the role in brain health, that would be much appreciated. Yeah, sure. So it's funny that nobody really, uh, you know, argues about exercise, the benefit of exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's incredible. Um, People think it's good for your body, but it's exceptionally good for the brain. Um, there've been multiple clinical trials showing that people who exercise regularly, whether it's strength training or aerobic, they have, um, bigger brains. Um, when we exercise, what two things happen, um, the cerebral blood flow increases and, um, there is release of certain growth hormones like BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factors which contribute to more uh, neuroplasticity, so more connections between brain cells. And in a clinical trial, it showed that people who engaged in strength training in six months and exercised about 45 days, uh, uh, 45 minutes per day for about you know uh, three to four days a week, they increased the size of their hippocampi by 2% per year, which is amazing. Um, and focusing on large muscles like leg muscles benefits the brain the most. Obviously, you know, we have the biggest muscles and more, more secretion of BDNF, more cerebral blood flow by strengthening the legs. Um, and, you know, but even if, if people don't want to engage in a strenuous, um, moderate to strenuous act- levels of activity, you know, a simple brisk walk has been shown to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 40% in the Framingham Longitudinal Study. Um, so, you know, it's all about exercising regularly, making sure that sedentary habits are minimized because, um, you know, if you exercise, say, 20 to 30 minutes a day, but then you sit behind your desk for three to four hours um, a day, that nullifies the effect of all the exercise you've done. Um, and so it should be a regimented, regular, moderate, strenuous exercise program um, for the brain. Yeah. And that's exercise. And as far as sleep stress. is concerned, okay, you want to talk about yeah, stress? Yeah, so we have this neuro concept. The one little catchy, cheesy thing we do is the neuro concept, which is how bullet it sticks. N is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, because it's not about just bad stress, but good stress as well. Um, your brain's function your brain's purpose, the fact that you actually are paralyzed eight hours of the night uh, and, and the fact that your brain continues to grow and is, is susceptible during birth and, and first year is because of this brain's need for stress, <clears throat> for challenge. What kind of stress? 
the kind of stress that is actually purpose-driven and survival-oriented. So all stress is not bad. Bad stress is the kind of stress that's not doesn't have direction, doesn't have clear success parameters, doesn't have clear timelines, and it's amorphous and it's a it's a tension feeling, survival feeling that never manifests in success quickly, and that creates a persistent sympathetic overdrive. For those of you, uh, there's autonomic system that's parasympathetic and sympathetic. Simply stated, and it's much more complex, we love the autonomic system. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We literally, I mean, I'm going to get... We love it like uh, family. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I was going to get more, more visual than that. Families. Uh, yeah. uh, so the sympathetic, which is fight or flight, simply stated, and then the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest and reproduce, um, are two separate, very old brain mechanisms. Survival, before we had a cortex, before we had, you know, it was brainstem and, and the autonomic system. The sympathetic system is, doesn't care about your long-term. Again, like evolution doesn't care about your long-term, your sympathetic system doesn't care about your long-term. It cares about you surviving right now. You've been bitten by a tiger. There goes that tiger again. And, and so it wants to pull the blood away from the periphery into the central. It doesn't want to spend energy on your immune system. It doesn't care about your you know, fighting immune, immunity. It, it, it changes its co- coagulation relationship. Sexuality is not a factor. If it is, you're pretty sick. Um, at, at that time, and, and, and growth is not a factor. Survival is a factor. So what does that mean? Your entire auto, uh, autonomic system affects the body in a way through the limbic hypothalamic pituitary system and from the limbic autonomic system, two general pathways. They're not separate, but kind of. To move the body towards survival, lowering immunity, your growth hormone system is diminished, your survival system, which is blood to the center, and, and, and the, your thyroid being on overdrive is pushed. So what happens is if it's sustained in that way, because we're not in the 10,000 years ago, we're now in modern world where that stress feeling is constant. So that, that calculus has moved more towards sympathetic, always agitated, always uncomfortable, never finishing something. It's always you know, multitasking and not, no task ever gets done that feeling actually is translated into your autonomic system where your vasculature is affected, your growth hormone is diminished, your sex hormones are affected, your immunity through adrenal system is affected. That's why people who have chronic stress have higher cancer risk, have higher infection risks. So stress management has to be more complex. It can't be just meditation. Meditation is fantastic. We love meditation, but it's gotta be a plan. It's got to be a strategy of how to truly fight stress and create a life where you're reducing, eliminating, delegating bad stress specifically. I don't like my job is not specific. I don't like this part of it, which I'm going to delegate or reduce over time. I like this part of it, which I'm going to empower, increase, and give tools to. That's actually a Tony Robbins kind of a thing, right? Life plan. But by doing that, you actually take control of your autonomic system and your pituitary system where your hormones are con- under your control that's why stress is significant mm-hmm. and if you don't manage stress forget about managing your diet for your food you're going from diet to bad diet from new year resolution to new year resolution you're not actually truly changing the habit of eating mm-hmm. you're never going to be doing a habitual exercise or uh, and then the positive stress is what you're doing 
you don't like every part of medical school. I hated histology, although I told my kids today that I love histology now, now in retrospect. You yeah. Now you like it. <laughs> but, 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 but you, the general direction, as stressful as it is, we know that that is actually protective because your brain is being pushed. And here's the, here's the magic. You have 87 billion neurons. Each of them can make a few connections or as many as 30,000 30, connections. And not just connection, redundant pathways. Dr. Dilip Jeste, um, uh, who's the, who was the head of NIMH and is the head of Aging Institute in, UC, in UCSD now, San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. We did a study together called um, a review, a, ma a massive review called Successive Cog Cognitive Aging and looking at imaging and successful brain aging. And what we found was that successful agers had more neuronal connections and more redundant connections, meaning the same part of the brain that was working for that function on the right side of the brain was also doing the same thing on the left, whereas non-successful agers were doing less, more on one side and less connectivity. So stressing your brain, challenging your brain, don't just retire, start something else that challenges your brain around your purpose, has clear outlines and is joyful and is purpose-driven, but it's challenging, maintains the redundancy and connectivity of the neuron. And it's actually the highest protection for the brain. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that's like motivation enough for anyone to like kind of take some steps and actually like look at their life and you're right it's not enough to just like meditate once a day you have to like systematically like look at your life and like assess look at the areas that you can improve and um what areas you can like maybe cut down and uh improve your quality of life so thank you yeah, absolutely. and um aisha you were going to talk a little bit about sleep oh yeah sleep goodness gracious um can't forget about that <laughs> um sleep um, it, it was usually just swept under the rug. It was never, uh, never prioritized for years and years, but I'm really glad that things are changing now, especially in the last five years, people have done a lot of, um, studies on it and, uh, we've understood it better because of the great diagnostics that we have. And, um, you know, uh, sleep is an incredibly important element of brain health. Two things happen when we sleep. The first thing that happens is memory consolidation. So all of the information that you gather during the day gets organized in the brain, it gets consolidated into the right file folder cabinet so that it's easier for you to retrieve it the next day. And there is a very complex mechanism of that happening and it only takes place when we reach the deep stages of sleep. So we have N1 and 2 and 3 stages and people who have sleep disorders that don't go to the sleep uh, deep stages of slow wave sleep and reaching the delta waves they don't get to consolidate memory properly. So it's very important to rule out any sleep disorders and to make sure that sleep hygiene is maintained, which essentially means going to the bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, making sure that you have the right environment and everything else that is focused on making sure you reach those stages. Um, seven to eight hours is the, the, the key. Anything less than that or more than that is problematic. Less than that means you probably are having some sleep disorders. More than that means you're probably not getting enough deep sleep. So you better get yourself checked. Um, sleep apnea is a major issue in this country. It's an epidemic and it can increase the risk of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease in one series by 70%, wow. uh, let alone you know restless leg syndrome and all the other things. The second thing that happens in sleep is the brain cleanses itself. You know, For such a high demanding organ that is so active, imagine the amount of you know, debris and the byproducts that are created. So it gets cleansed when we sleep. And there's a glymphatic system in the brain that gets activated only when we reach the deep stages of sleep. 
Um, and even one night of bad sleep increases these debris and the toxic byproducts. And in patients who are at risk of dementia, it increases the deposition of beta amyloid protein. It doesn't get cleansed during sleep. So it increases risk for Alzheimer's disease as well. There was a time when we all took pride in sleeping only for four hours and being functional the next day, but that doesn't exist. There've been studies, neuropsychological studies that show that people who have had less sleep, they have low processing speed, they have low executive function, their judgment is impaired. So it's critical to um, sleep for seven to eight hours. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Um, Pleasure. So, that was a I feel quick like, rundown. Okay, no, <laughs> it, it was so well put. I feel like we could go on and we have a lot of questions, but I think we're going to have to do a round two. Um, so we have Happy three questions you. that we ask every guest we interview. So we would love to ask both of you as well. The first question is, what is your favorite plant-based meal? Ooh. Plant-based meal? Yeah. Yes. You go ahead. Uh, so Aisha, uh, to be honest, she makes such amazing so meals. I went, so I went to cooking school, yeah, so I'm totally, kind of biased, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm a <laughs> I mean, it's your favorite nowadays. Uh, now. So she, what she's done is this soup, the, this Mediterranean soup that she makes. Um, uh, and, and actually there's a lot, the lasagna that she makes, plant-based lasagna that she makes. And then there's this key lime pie that take, take a, a, a pie that's, poison and makes it into health food. Um, so there's a lot of things she makes, but my, my favorite dessert is the key lime pie yeah. um, that's healthy. And, and then the, the food, there's this, this soup, this lentil soup that she makes that's amazing. Oh, recently she's making these amazing uh, uh, sushi. Yeah. Oh. yeah you know, when I went, yeah, when I went plant-based, one of the things I missed, and we've been plant-based for 15 years, was sushi. Oh no. Oh, no, no, no. There's nothing missing. The best sushi on <laughs> the planet is what she's making. I'm saying I love food. I eat a lot. Um, I, I went to cooking school because of my love and passion for food. I probably would have been a chef if I was not a neurologist. That's what I, I say. Love food. I <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, gosh, um, I don't have a favorite. By the way, she's also a professional singer. I'm the one with no talent in the family. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. So yeah. maybe maybe in the second episode, we can have like a, <laughs> a small portion where you get to sing as well as cook us a meal. Maybe we'll just come down to California. I'd love to. I <laughs> no, don't know about the they, singing, but I'd they love can to come to, to our home. Oh, yeah. Anytime you're in Los Angeles, you guys should come over. I'd love to cook for you guys. But, awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, there's just so many. And my, my kids love the cashew cheeses that I make, Yeah, you know, because that's something that everybody misses when they go plant-based. My kids have always been plant-based, but, you know, mozzarella cheese on pizza or cheese dips. I make cashew cheeses and nut cheeses that are, you know, amazing. And you don't miss that, 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 that umami flavor uh, that's in cheese anymore. So I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah. Sounds so good. <laughs> All right. Second question here. What is one kitchen item you wouldn't be able to live without? Oh, my chef knife, obviously. Yeah, my <laughs> chef knife is, it's, I tell you, it's almost like meditation, cutting vegetables for me. If you have a really nice sharp knife and if you have your, your surface ready and you go through cutting your vegetables and smashing garlic and chopping onions, the smell and everything, it's just meditation for me. That's the most I have had relaxation. That's scary for me. <laughs> chopping yeah. things with a sharp knife is her meditation. <laughs> I will oh. never oh, that get her right. angry. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Dean, do you have a favorite kitchen item? 
Well, I'm the sous chef. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I do a lot of the cutting and I do a lot of the rinsing and cleaning and massaging of the kale. I love the massaging of the kale. So n- not really. I mean, the, 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 my favorite thing is the, the pan. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, um, and we've learned how to create amazing things like uh, French fries, but without the, the oil, you know, without the processed stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, all of the, uh, I've become, because of her, I've learned so much about cooking and food because it's important. In fact, in our study, one of the things we tell people is your best healthcare product learning is if you become aware of cooking, because then you actually go into the, you recognize the foods. Um, uh, Sophie and I, we, I, we made this little garden of um, uh, herbs and yeah. spices. In our patio, we have yeah. a small patio. And we just pick things and then squeeze it and smell it. I'm like, oh my gosh. That's a uh, for people to become aware of that, it changes their relationship with food. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, third question: What is one final piece of advice or takeaway you would like to leave for our listeners? Oh, you go first. Okay, um, we are living in a complex world where people from all directions are going to play uh, around data, play around your confirmation bias, play around. Um, uh, group identity, whatever it is, to kind of pull you in one direction or another. The only thing that you should learn is how to distill data, how to truly go through data. Not just data, that little paper, great paper, but how to put it in the context of other data and other people and reproducibility in the source. And don't even rely on us. If we don't bring you the right information, and if even if it's partial information, we say so, that this is partial information, and given the previous data, it's in this direction. And if we don't do that, don't listen to us. And there is no authority. The only authority is data. And well-defined, well-contextualized data and, and let that be your direction. And don't let your confirmation bias or anything else direct you because it matters. It matters because we see the end point, 10 to 15 years end of life, where it's pain, suffering, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's stroke, whether it's Parkinson's, this is not a blame thing. People say, oh, are you blaming people who got it? No, it's an empowering thing. We have a major amount of control over that, but it starts with where you get your data. What he said, I can't top that. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. If our listeners want to reach out and connect with you, where can they find you? Oh, we're very active on uh, social media. Our Instagram handle is at TeamSharesIMD. Um, we're TeamSharesI on Facebook and Twitter as well. Our website is TeamSharesI.com. Um, we interact with all of our audience ourselves. We don't have a marketing director or anything. So, you know, love hearing stories, love connecting with people. Um, yeah. Awesome. We'll Good definitely class. put all of that in the show notes so people thank can you. find you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I... I feel like just talking to you guys gave me an idea to do a second round about your kids and a, a whole family and as how you guys as a family been plant-based and maybe if you guys are okay with it, we would just love to bring your kids and ask them questions. How has it been for them being plant-based all their lives? Oh, they would love to. They've written yeah, awesome. two, bo- two books yeah, and yeah. one of them on plant-based diet. And, and this last year they were in, uh, with us in two talks. They had their own talks. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, <laughs> Look at that. The kids are, they're, 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 they're very passionate about um, health for children, brain health, the environment, um, animal welfare. 
they're very active on social media. They, they're called the science kids. They, they create small videos about science and about their experiments and about, you know, ways we can solve problems in our lives using science. That's amazing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that they would be happy to speak with you guys. That's amazing. We well, look thank forward you so to much it. once again. Um, and can't wait to have you guys again. Thank you for having thank us. You. This was so much fun. Wonderful. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Plant Prescription Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and hopefully this inspires you to take steps towards making changes so you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. You can also follow us on Instagram where we share nutrition, health, and fitness content along with recipes. Our Instagram handles can be found in the description of this episode. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss on any upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this, We would love it if you left us a positive review and a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to share this with any family or friends who may benefit. Thank you so much for listening. Also, be sure to eat plenty of plants and see you next week.